Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if I may, while you're turning there, I just have a couple questions for you. How important is authenticity to you? Like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how authentic do you hope to be? Or when you're meeting new people, how authentic do you hope that they are? Is authenticity all that important? How about for followers of Jesus? Is that an important character trait that followers of Jesus need to put on display? Or is authenticity one of those things that just people in Gen X and people with way too much time on their hands care about? Like, how important is it that we're authentic? That was question number one. Question number two is this. What do police officers, judges, and therapists have in common? I swear, I swear this is not the setup for like a dad joke. I promise, okay? (laughs) But in his latest book, Talking with Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell invites us to just consider that. What do police officers, judges, and therapists have in common? The answer might surprise you. Like it totally surprised me. But if you are a police officer, a therapist, or a judge, you are quite terrible at spotting liars. Yeah. You would think that in those professions, you would be actually quite skilled at recognizing who's telling the truth and who's lying. Uh, you know, if you're a police officer, you catch people doing not nice things. They're probably going to lie. You're a therapist. You're sitting with someone paying you lots of money to tell you lies. Uh, And if you are a judge, someone is facing decisions or consequences of their decisions, and so they may lie. But the people in those professions are actually quite bad at spotting it. They actually score about 50%. So it's like a flip of a coin, chance. Uh, And we're no better. The average person is about 50% when we think, okay, the person in front of me, they're presenting themselves in a certain way. I think they're telling the truth. We're about 50% on that. And lots of people uh, have theories about why that is. Uh, So Dr. Timothy Levine, he's a a professor of psychology, uh, and he thinks, he spends his time thinking about why people lie. Uh, And in his book, Gladwell says that there are as many theories about why people lie uh, as there are theories about the Kennedy assassination. Which, if you know anything about the 60s, there's a ton of crazy thought out there about why JFK got shot. But we think about this a lot, like, why, why do people lie? And, and, and how do we know? How do we know if the person in front of us is who they are uh, portraying themselves to be? So Dr. Levine uh, did this test. He wanted to say, hey, how good are we at spotting liars? And so he took students in to let them know, hey, you're going to be part of, of a psychological test, Okay. And and these students should have had a ton of tells that, hey, like, we're going to lie to you. All right, so these students were brought in, and they were, were, hey, we're going to play a game, and if you do well on the game, we'll give you money. So we're going to play, like, a sort of trivial pursuit. We'll ask you questions like, what's the tallest mountain in Asia? And if you answer enough correct, you'll get money. And so the student comes and sits down, and they're paired with a partner. Someone they've never met before, right? So if you're a part of a study, that should be a tell, right? Hey, you're with someone you've never met before, and they're helping you, their partner. And then there was also someone in the room, an assistant. 
And so halfway through this experiment, like the assistant's asking questions, and then she closes her journal, her notebook, and says, oh, would you excuse me? I just need to run to the restroom. Burn, burn, like red flag. Like, no, you don't need to go to the back. You don't need to go to the restroom. Okay, like you're trying to study me. All right, all right. Nobody notices. They just kind of assume things are as they're presented. And so then here's the second tell. This partner of yours, keep in mind, a person you have never met. You've never seen this person before now. They say to you, hey, I could really use the money. So how about we take a look in her notebook and see if there's any answers in there? To which you go, yeah, that seems reasonable. And you buy into it. And 60% of students cheated, right? And so afterwards, when they were reviewing this information with the students, none of them thought that they were being lied to. None of them picked up on these very obvious tells of like, hey, you're getting a study. The person giving you the study leaves. This person presents you with a temptation. Nobody picked up on that. So Dr. Levine posits, he puts forward this theory that the reason we're so bad at spotting liars is because it's human nature to just believe people. We think that as people present themselves, that's who they really are. We kind of have this natural bent toward trust. Now, not obviously not like deep, intimate, emotional trust, but we just kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. We assume, oh yeah, you're presenting yourself this way. That's who you really are, obviously. That's why authenticity is so crucial for followers of Jesus. Because authenticity has to do with trust. See, we're saying, hey, we're presenting ourselves in a certain way. And then if it's not true, we erode trust. And it's very hard to win back trust once you've lost it. So we're coming up to a point in the Sermon on the Mount where at first glance, it seems like we're kind of off the hook, right? The Sermon on the Mount is hard, right? Jesus leaves nowhere to hide. He's like, hey, don't just be righteous. Don't, don't practice your righteousness in front of other people. It's like, ah, oh, I've totally done that. I've totally wanted people to see how great I am. Hey, don't lust after people. Ah, totally done that. Hey, don't be angry. Ah, guilty. And now he's like, hey, don't make oaths. And we're like, oh, check. I'm nailing this. I have got this down. I've never made an oath in my life. We are home free. I got a week off from the Sermon on the Mount. There's other Christians, though, who take it the total opposite way. And they're like, oh my goodness, I'm not supposed to take oaths. That means I can't enter into a mortgage. If I ever get called into court and they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. No, I can't. I'm not supposed to take oaths. So we just have to recognize going into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a little bit of a cultural barrier between us and the original audience. And I really don't want you to miss it. Like, we don't get a free pass this week. This is super life-giving. There is a ton of freedom in Jesus telling his original audience not to make oaths. Because here's, here's what he's saying. Here's at the heart. We're gonna, I'm just going to unpack it a little bit, and then we're going to read it and ask for God's help. But here's the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, life in the kingdom, when God comes and reclaims his creation, and when we live there, when we're following him, Life in the kingdom is not about sounding spiritual. Life in the kingdom is not about like being able to master the, the lost craft of pious babble. 
Kathy Keller uses that phrase, and I love it. Pious babble. We just say things because they sound spiritual. You know people like that. You certainly no one in here does that. But you know, they're like, oh, I'm going through a tough time. Praying for you. Praying for you. Or the, oh, hey, all things for good, brother. All things for good. I don't know what that means, but I just sound really good saying it, and you think I'm really good saying it. Pious babble. Life in the kingdom, though, is not about sounding spiritual. Life in the kingdom is about being. Not performing, but being. And so when Jesus lays out this simple command, don't make these oaths, but let your yes be yes, and let your no's be no's. He's inviting us into a space of authenticity. He's inviting us to stop presenting ourselves in a way that we think people want to see. Oh, you must think I'm so righteous because of how I sound. He's calling us away from that into this freedom of just simply being honest. Simply being. And when we're people who jump off that performance treadmill... We're, actually, we're, fulfill, we're fulfilling what Jesus says, that we're going to be a city on a hill. That when people see our good deeds, they will glorify the Father in heaven when we're authentic. When we're us. That's tremendously freeing. See, when we fail to be authentic, there's a lot at stake. When we fail to be authentic and we just can't get off that performance treadmill, we are communicating an awful lot about God. We're communicating that he doesn't actually care about knowing you. He just cares about you jumping through the right hoops, you living up to the right standard. But when we really see that this is an invitation to just this simple, honest authenticity, there's a tremendous freedom there. That, that we don't have to just be a certain way to be accepted and loved by God. We get loved and accepted, and then we sort things out. And we can be totally honest about that in the process. Not can be totally honest. We're invited to always be totally honest about that. So let's read this passage. I'm going to read it. And then uh, it's been our habit around here. I'm going to say, when I'm done reading it, this is the word of the Lord. And you all can reply, thanks be to God. So this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Here we go. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I myself say to you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father, so many of us, I'm afraid, don't even really know how to be authentic. Father, we, we come to you thinking that you want us to perform, you want us to sing for our meals, 
And so we stay at a distance. Father, I pray that your spirit would move this morning through your word to help us find rest. That you are the God who chases after us, who knows us, and that when we simply be, when we, when we just let our yes be yes and our no be no, when we present ourselves not as who we think we should be, but as who we are, we are putting Jesus on display. Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Oaths. When was the last time you made an oath? Probably never, because this was written to people who lived before iPads. All right, so if if we want to know that somebody saying something is credible, we can just Google them, right? I have, you know, we look at the politician who says, I have never, ever believed such and such. We can find out in seconds if that's true. We have this amazing credibility booster called the internet. These folks didn't have such a thing. So in order to boost their credibility in an age where they couldn't take pictures of things, where they couldn't sign things and store them online, what they would do is they would make these things called oaths. And so Israel didn't just do it. All their neighbors did it. And here's what would happen. Let's say I'm trying to sell you a cow. You don't know me. Uh, and so here's what I would do. I would say something like this. I'm a Babylonian. I worship the god Marduk. And I would say, look, this is the best cow ever. Oh my gosh, they can read and write. They're grass-fed. They're fantastic. And look, if I'm lying to you, may Marduk, that's the Babylonian god, may Marduk just strike me down. And you think, man, religion is super important. This person wouldn't just throw around their God's name willy-nilly. Like, wow. And they're clearly respected in the community. Okay, I think this person is trustworthy. So Israel started doing this habit as well. They wanted to be like, gain credibility, so we make these oaths, so we appear credible. Only problem was they couldn't do it quite like their neighbors were doing. In the Hebrew Bible, there are these things called the Ten Commandments. And commandment number three says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And many rabbis in that time interpreted what was going on. Okay, you cannot do what your neighbors are doing. You can't say, hey, if this cow isn't really grass-fed, if if you find out I kept this chicken in a cage, uh, may Yahweh strike me down. Rabbis said, no, 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 that's taking Yahweh's name in vain, and we don't want to do that. And so what people would do is, okay, I need to boost my credibility here. I need to seem like I really know what I'm talking about, but I can't do this. All right, we'll make these substitutes. So we'll talk about, instead of saying God, we'll say heaven. Or instead of saying uh, God, we'll say the earth, you know, or the temple or Jerusalem. That's why Jesus identifies here. He says, don't swear by, that's why he's saying, don't swear by the heaven. He didn't pull that out of thin air. That's what people were using. But now we fast forward to the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus goes head to head with the Pharisees. And he says, look, y'all have been presenting yourselves as like spiritual giants in the community. You would travel the world uh, to make a convert, and you make them twice the, hell, uh, twice the child of hell that you are, and you try to make yourself sound super spiritual by swearing by the gold in the temple, but it's totally useless. That's the context Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to people who had been spiritually abusing the people around them. This is why it's so important for us as Christians to recognize what's going on behind the oaths. People claiming to represent God, saying, hey, you got to live a certain way, 
I'm super righteous because listen to how I talk. And it put this tremendous burden on people. Because here, here's really what the Pharisees were saying. I perform. I'm nailing this faith thing. And I'm performing way better than you. Listen to how I talk. Goodness. And we just naturally tend to trust that. I mean, that's why in American evangelicalism, it's just like scandal after scandal after scandal. Because we trust people. They present themselves a certain way, but it turns out they're not really who they present themselves. And it does tremendous damage. Jesus is speaking to people who have been wounded by spiritual authority in their life. Anybody else in here? Anybody else said like, hey, man, someone I really trusted. They used to make me feel so bad. And then I found out they didn't even really believe this stuff. Jesus is saying this. He's, not, he's coming into their world and instead of saying, hey, try harder, perform better, make better vows. He's like, look, don't make vows at all. We're done here. All right. We are just, we're just closing down the shop and we're moving next door. All right, and so just in case you're wondering, the Bible is not against you promising. It's not against you making oaths. Um, because when Jesus says, hey, don't make an oath, a couple chapters later, a uh, book, couple books later, this superhero in the New Testament, Paul, makes an oath. At the end of the book of Revelation, an angel makes an oath. Peter makes an oath later in the gospel. The Bible is not saying, hey, don't make these oaths. Oaths. It's kind of like throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps using hyperbole again and again. He's saying like, hey, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's like what he's saying in Isaiah. Like, hey, Israel, you've been making tons of sacrifices. They're annoying. Stop making sacrifices. That's what he's saying here. But y'all are playing the wrong game. I do not care how you sound. You sound super righteous. I do not care. Just cut it out. And here's what he's inviting us into. It's not about sounding spiritual. It's not about presenting this version of ourselves that we think everybody wants to see. We think God wants to see this. It's about embracing just who we are. Letting our yes be yes and letting our no be no. There's a lot at stake here. Jesus says, he says this in verse 37, Anything that goes beyond that comes from the evil one. So when we think, oh man, I've got a really sound spiritual this week. Someone's going to ask me how many days in a row I read my Bible this week. And it wasn't great. So I'm going to just embellish. I'm going to paint my week super godly. Jesus says like, hey, when you do that, you are borrowing a playbook from the wrong team. That doing that, not being authentic, is actually not good for you. It's being borrowed from the evil one. That's that strategy, that performance base. It hurts us when we constantly keep trying to perform. So what does it even mean to be authentic? How do we be authentic? If it's true that Jesus says, hey, for my followers to really be salt and light, to be winsome, to be beautiful, you must be you. What in the world does that mean and how do we do it? How in the world do we really pursue authenticity in a world where people feel crazy fake? How do we 
be who we are. Well, there's three ways I think that we can unpack, that we can live out this passage in our context. Three ways that we can say, okay, I'm going to just embrace this humble, open transparency. I'm going to embrace authenticity. I'm going to step in that direction following Jesus, and I'm just going to trust him that that's what puts him on display. Yes, everything inside me says like, oh no, sounding good in this moment, that's what's going to put God on display. But I'm going to trust that me being myself puts him on on display. Three ways. First way, and this is going to sound crazy counterintuitive, but the first way that we can be authentic people is to practice the spiritual discipline of silence. Okay. Uh, As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Ed and I have been just like going into each other's offices and like kicking the theological can around. And, And Pastor Ed and I, one of the things we've both kind of come into agreement about is like, man, I feel like the spiritual disciplines was this massive thing in my life that I was just totally missing, right? Like, I just thought, like, oh, I just got to read my Bible and pray, and that's, those are the spiritual disciplines I need. But as we go through the sermon, we're coming out, wow, there's, like, all these other disciplines that I just didn't even know about that can be super transformative. And both Ed and I have said to each other, Man, the most powerful spiritual discipline right now in my life is the spiritual discipline of silence. It has been monumentally transformative to just find a chair, set a timer, and just sit there. Look, I know what you're thinking. That is weird. That just sounds so bizarre. Are you asking me to be like some like 15th century mystic where I go off into the woods and just be quiet? And like, yeah, I was, no, no, I'm not asking you to do that. But I was totally there too. It just sounds bizarre, right? Like silence. What in the world does silence do? I think I'll go so far as I believe that silence right now is one of the most important spiritual disciplines all of us can be practicing. We are constantly bombarded with noise. We are constantly bombarded with these voices. And aware of it or not, they're pushing us in performance direction. You want to be happy? Got to look this way. Want to be this way? Be this. Do that. You've got to buy this or your life isn't complete. And to just, for a second, just unplug. Silent. Not get any of that input. Clears your mind in a crazy way. If you're extroverted like me, you can relate to this. And if you're introverted, I'm about to describe like your worst nightmare and like, what, is this person like a serial killer? <laughs> in conversations, when the conversation goes silent, that's like panic mode for me. I'm like, oh, I just got to say something to fill this because they're going to hate this conversation if there's any lull. Oh, so boom, we're over here now talking about like this really random thing. Boom, now, just because I don't want it to be silent. Here's what happens. Like you don't have to go in the woods to practice silence. You can practice silence in conversations, just sitting, just being. That's a way to let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, like what, what, what does it mean to be authentic, right? Like you don't have to be Being authentic doesn't mean you get this like blank check to be a jerk. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm just going to say whatever pops in my head. I got to let my yes be yes and my no be no. So I'm going to say all, you know, someone asked me, hey, I'm going to just tell you the rude answer, right? Because I'm letting my yes be yes and my no be no. You don't actually have to say anything to let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Someone can come to you and ask for your opinion. And here's a way you can let your yes be yes and your no be no. I don't know. I don't know. That's totally authentic. It can be very difficult to try to perform and say, I don't know. 
man, people are looking at me for answers. I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. I'm supposed to like be this like spiritual like guru. I'm supposed to be like really good at all these things. I got to have a good answer here, or they're going to think, what kind of pastor is this? But Jesus is saying, life in the kingdom looks like, hey, I'm going to let my yes be yes and my no, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I value you asking me, and I just don't know. That transparency is way more life-giving for the person receiving it and for us than pretending, than performing. Jesus is calling us away from that treadmill, saying, hey, just a simple let your yes be yes and your no, no. Practicing the discipline of silence gives us space to remember this. We're always trying to fill like that space with noise. And look, I'm a loud person, okay? Just like ask my wife. I have just lately been on, I've been on this Red Hot Chili Peppers kick. And so I just crank it. So it comes up, I'm a loud person, right? I love noise. But silence helps me just, oh my goodness. I've not, I've not let my yes be yes here. Oh man, look at what I'm seeing here. Oh man, what, it just lets you see things clearly. Silence brings a clarity that the hustle and bustle of life fogs up. And so there's two ways to embrace silence. You can, what I do, this new thing I'm trying, I'll let you know if I'm still doing it disciplined at all, but I try to twice a week for about 15 minutes, just no phone, no screen, no texting, talking, just not even praying, not journaling, not singing, nothing, just silence. No expectation that anything will happen, but just silence. And actually, it's becoming this thing I'm looking forward to. Like, ooh, I get to be silent on Tuesday's my silent day. Because I get this crazy, I get this crazy clarity because we are all constantly bombarded. That's one way we can practice silence. It's a disciplined way to just embrace it. The other way is in conversation. It's like, I'm just going to let, I'm going to let you run the conversation now. I'm going to just be. That one's hard. You've talked to me lately. I've not been great at that one. But these two ways are ways that we can cultivate a spirit of authenticity. We can recognize, man, I am on this performance track. Oh, man, I am really far down the performance track. I'm going to unplug for a second. The second way that we can be people who really let our yes be yes and our no be no is give ourselves time off from spin. We live in a world of spin. We live in a world where it is very difficult to find out what in the world is going on because it is so rare for anyone to let their yes be yes and their no be no. There are apps. There are industries popping up that they will, here's what they'll do. Okay, this group of people over here said that event A that happened was the best thing ever. And this group of people over here said that event A was the worst thing ever. So here's what we'll do. We'll put it beside each other. We won't even try to like uh, untangle. We'll just put it beside each other and we'll let you untangle it. That's, we just, we are so used to spin. Spin is the air we breathe. Everybody's always trying to sell us something. And we're just so used to thinking that's the way the world works. And so when we give ourselves time off from spin... That's another way to find clarity. And I don't want to be misunderstood when I tell us to give yourself time off from spin. I do not believe that it is spiritual maturity to have no idea what's going on in the world. That is not a mark of a mature Christian. 
If we're really called to be salt and light, if we're really called to love our neighbors, probably helps to know those neighbors. Probably helps to know why they think what they think. Or as Verna Herzog says, that's why we should watch the WWE, because more people watch it than anybody else. We should know what people think. Hashtag Brett the Hitman Heart. All right. But here, so it's not spiritual mature. I'm not saying head for the hills. We're all going to become monks. But here's what I am saying, is that I'm borrowing the language from Timothy Keller. It's very possible to let our minds be colonized by the places that we've been called to reach. We don't even know it, but we, we, we set out to reach them, and pretty soon we're thinking the way everyone around us is thinking. We're not being shaped by Scripture anymore. We're being shaped by those around us, and it's super subtle. It happens to all of us every single day. We're all, every day, being shaped by culture. And so every once in a while, as a rhythm, we need to recognize that and unplug. Not because we hate culture and because culture is bad, but to better serve those cultures that we're called to. Like we really believe that Jesus says, hey, when you let your yes be yes and your no, no, that's life-giving for people. It's really hard if we don't take time and know ourselves to what, know what are our yeses and what are our noes. How do we be authentic? If we're constantly being shaped, if we're constantly giving ourselves over to just these voices that shape us. And look, this takes time. The great theologian Charles Barkley once said it like this. No one just comes out of nowhere. No one just comes out of nowhere. Here's what he's saying by that. He's saying like, oh, this like comedian that everybody likes, it's like, boom, they just popped out of nowhere and now everybody loves them. No, while, while you weren't watching, they were working. They were doing things. They were honing their craft. So if we want to earn the trust of our city, of Columbia, it can't just be because, well, I heard a sermon on Sunday. I went to work. Boom, everybody trusts me. Just like that, I came out of nowhere. No, we need to, like, don't look for shortcuts. Invest the time it takes to earn trust. That's the third thing we need to do to seek to be authentic. There is no shortcut to authenticity. Do not look for the shortcuts. Uh, The theologian Scott McKnight gives an example from his life of how he seeks to live this out, letting his yes be yes. Uh, McKnight was quite an athlete uh, before he became a theologian. And so he used to, with a friend, run a baseball camp in northern Illinois. And don't know if you've ever been to northern Illinois, it's crazy hot in the summertime, okay? And so they would have a five-day baseball camp. But a lot of people would cancel on certain days because they didn't want Susie and they didn't want Johnny passing out in a cornfield. They're like, oh man, it's hot, I'm just keeping my kid home today. And so here's what McKnight did. They would send him back a check. And parents would call like, wait, why, why am I getting this check for $80? And McKnight would say, hey, we said we were going to charge you for five days, and you, you only showed up for four. So that's all we're charging you for. That's how we're letting our yes be yes and our no be no. That's how we be honest and authentic. And people were like, what? Like, do you guys know how to run a business? Like, See, because like when, when this call to authenticity is so different from the way our culture does authenticity. 
The way our culture does authenticity is like, hey, every thought you've ever had should totally be affirmed. No questions asked. You be you. If anybody like reigns on your parade, we need to get rid of them. You, you know, just know you have this free reign. You be you. That's not quite how we do authenticity in the kingdom. In the kingdom, the call to be us is a call, yes, to be you. I have no idea where to sneak this into the Sermon on the Mount, but like the reason Jesus is telling people, let your yes be yes, be you, is because of Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, Paul makes this life-changing, amazing statement that I am convinced 95% of Christians don't really believe. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says this, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's why we let our yes be yes. Because as you live your life, Jesus is living through you. We have this thing called union with Jesus. We have been made one. We have been united with Jesus. And so when we be ourselves, when we're just being us, we are putting Jesus on display. Here's how that looks. Like, hey, yes, I know that I could charge you more money for this service but I'm just going to be honest. That's amazing. People don't naturally experience that. That is Jesus living through us. And like Jesus in us is super awesome. And it takes time for us to embrace authenticity and to go into the places we want to have influence for Jesus and impact and to see change. It really does, but trust that Jesus is in you and working, and when you are yourself, when you're honest, when you're not performing, you are putting Jesus on display. Does that mean every thought you have is super righteous and we're going to give it a thumbs up? No. We still wrestle with sin, certainly. But we believe in redemption, that Jesus is redeeming the real me. And so he's sending a redeemed me back into culture, and that redeemed me is going to break things for him. It's going to be fantastic. It's an act of trust that we can embrace authenticity. It's not just something for the people who read David Foster Wallace and people with way too much time on their hands. Authenticity is important. Jesus says our two options are this. We can be authentic or we can perform. And if you perform, you just got to know that you are borrowing a play from a playbook of the other team. Doesn't mean you're on the other team, but you just need to know, hey, that's not going to work like you think it's going to work. Like you can have this performance thing nailed down. You can be checking all the boxes. But if you're running a playbook from the other team, it doesn't matter how great you are at performing. Like Anna Montez... Gladwell talks about Anna Montez. She was an analyst for the DIA. I didn't know this, but apparently there's three wings of the intelligence community. There's the CIA, the NSA, and the DIA. So she was in the DIA, and she checked every single box. She was an amazing analyst. She um, received a medal from the director of the CIA. She won a grant to be part of a distinguished analyst program. Lots of people thought she would one day grow up to be the director of the CIA. Only problem was she was a Cuban spy. 
she was borrowing a playbook from another team. So if you remember the 90s, which I do, 90s, there was a rough relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. Fidel Castro was super powerful, and people were fleeing Cuba like crazy. Tens of thousands of people died making the trek from Cuba to Florida, that 90-mile trek through the ocean. And it infuriated Castro. He's just like, oh, this is making me look bad. Everybody is leaving. This is bad PR. To make it worse, there were some American nationals in Florida who had a plane, and they would fly and rescue uh, people fleeing Castro. They would rescue these refugees, and that made Castro look super bad. And he hated it. He was totally infuriated, and they wanted to shoot that plane down. Only problem, they knew if they did, it would start a war. And so they never were able to shoot that plane down. Then comes along Anna Montez. Anna Montez was sympathetic toward communism, and so they said, here's our gal. And they turned her over to the Cuban, uh, they had her defect, and so she was still working in the DIA and was doing an amazing job. Everyone totally believed that she was this awesome analyst. Meanwhile, every night she was sending everything that happened to her back to Havana. Well, so the plane did get shot down, February 24th, but Montez orchestrated this amazing, like, this PR, like Hail Mary touchdown, amazing. So what happened was uh, Montez, the day before the plane was shot down, February 23rd, she invites, she invites this high-ranking official to come to Havana with her. And she gets them put down with some high members of Castro's team. And they say, we hate those, plan- those planes, and just to let you know, we really would love to shoot them down. Red flags go off for this admiral. He's like, oh, man, i got to get back and warn people. He goes back and warns everybody. Next day, the planes get shot down. We're really upset. We're ready to go to war. Who goes on CNN, though? This admiral and says, hey, I warned them about this, and they didn't do anything. And now America looks silly. Planes were shot down. We can't do anything about it because it really became a story about American incompetence. Here's what's happening. You can be amazing at this performance track. You can sound so godly. Like, we just can't even compete with how much you know. Here's the thing. If that's the heart of your spirituality, is this performance. And look, it's the heart of all of our spirituality. We all believe, if I can just do more, then I'll have God's blessing in my life. Oh, man, I'm about to preach tonight, tomorrow, Amy. We can't get in a fight on Saturday night. All right, and I got to get a good night's sleep, so we just, everything has to be great. We can't be messy because I got to perform. Look, that's the heart all of us have. And Jesus is saying, Stop, it's not us. It's not us anymore. Like, we are known, we are loved, we have been found and redeemed. So when we play the pious babble game, we are borrowing a playbook. That just doesn't work anymore from the losing team. And Jesus is inviting us into freedom away from that. And look, it's so tricky. Like just because you know this doesn't mean it all gets figured out right away. So like letting your yes be yes and your no be no, that can be kind of confusing and messy. Let me just give you an example. For some of you, you come to church and you just want to dress up. And some of you come to church and we don't want to dress up. And so here's what happens. Both sides look at the other and say, man, 
I am more spiritual than they are. (laughs) I am more spiritual than the person in uh, jeans and a t-shirt because, man, I get it. I get God's glory, and I'm dressed up for it. And the person in jeans and t-shirt says, man, I get it. I'm more spiritual than the person in a shirt and tie because I'm myself. I know that uh, not, there's no sacred clothes, and I, God knows me for me. I'm off the performance track. I get it. And here's just what I have to say to you. Like, let's not be so shallow. All right? Like, that performance ethic is worked so deep into all of us. It doesn't really care how we dress. We can turn anything into a performance anything. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, get a better suit. Make sure there's more holes in those jeans. He's saying this, just stop. I'm not impressed either way. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Authenticity is important because trust is important. When we really are ourselves, it just takes so many guns out of the bullets. It invites people to be themselves. And look, we have avenues to do that together as a community. You'll notice these like silvery starry balloons. We're launching community groups soon. One of the natural rhythms of community group, every community group that we do this thing, we open them with this thing called examine. And that's a fantastic opportunity for all of us to just let our yes be yes and our no be no. Here are the questions and examine. Tell me a time this week you felt near to God. You feel the temptation like, oh man, I got to tell this awesome spiritual story. Tell me a time you felt far from God. That, that's hard to perform and be honest there. And then tell us something you're grateful for. We can make this a natural rhythm doing it together and cultivating a community where we let our yes be yes and our no be no. Not where we have to have all the answers. We have to perform. We're just trying to show each other, hey, I know more about the Bible than you do. We can get off that treadmill. And when we get off, it's freeing for other people. Other people can experience that weight lifted. Because like authenticity is important because trust is important. And when, when we... People are looking at us. When, we, when people find out that we're followers of Jesus, whether they're aware of it, whether we're aware of it, all of a sudden it's like, well, what's he really like? I'm watching you. And when we communicate, oh, you know what Jesus is like? He wants a really great show. He really likes it when we live this way. Or it's, hey, Jesus finds us by his grace, by his mercy, and then we sort things out. I don't have to perform. I'm rescued, then I'm transformed. When we communicate that, that just lets all these walls come down. And that's how we be a city on a hill for Columbia. God, help us to do this. Help us to live out this reality. Father, we really believe that you are the God who's come after us, who has found us. Father, I pray that we would not trust our performance That we would not think that because we sound a certain way, because we look a certain way, that we are somehow earning from you. But Father, you rescue us by grace. Help us to believe that. Help us to put these uh, these actions into practice this week. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Would you all stand and sing with us?